so much for joining me today, Jamie and Allison. So I always start the show off with a question, what do you believe? Wow, it's a big question. Um, but Jamie and I, we are both, you know, we come from very spiritual and religious backgrounds. And we believe that life is a gift from God, you know, and that God is love and that God is always with us. And now more than ever, it feels like God is surrounding us and that we need to listen to that golden rule that we've all been brought up, um, you know, to um, uh, live within our lives. And that is to like love one another, treat others the way that you want to be treated, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that is one of the things that Jamie and I believe. That's beautiful. Um, I, I believe that as well. And I do think it, to your point that this is, this is a time for, for us to, 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 to follow God and to go with God and have a spiritual practice. And mm -hmm. um, I think sometimes, you know, people call it the universe. People can say it's God, source, spirit, whatever, whatever that practice is. But I do also believe and agree with you that it is right now that time of connection with, with, the, greater, with the greater power. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and one of the things, uh, you know, I believe, uh, for example, in my country's motto, I'm Jamaican. And our motto says, out of many, one people. But I also believe in America's uh, Declaration of Independence, at least one statement in that declaration, which says, and um, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, um, and I would add that this also means the pursuit of property, which, you know, from my point of view, also represents um, freedom and independence. Absolutely. So beautiful. Yes, thank you. Thank you for that. And yes, we are in unprecedented times. And uh, what is fight we're fighting what has been a long war for civil rights and liberty for Black America. What is different about this time for you both? And what has affected you? And what do you want people, and I say white people, to know about this moment? Absolutely. We're gonna take it in different stages because you're asking us a lot of questions. Yeah. But I think the most obvious difference is the COVID-19. It's the fact that the coronavirus has created this great pause. And again, this pause, as far as Jamie and I are concerned, this is actually a gift mm. because at this moment, everybody is stuck inside of their homes. They can't, uh, you know, go out and be as social as they might have been. They can no longer use the excuse that I'm too busy. 
you know, um, we're all connected to our cell phones. We're all connected to the internet. It's coming at us from every which way. And so it's not just coming at us here in the United States. This is worldwide. Everyone is paying attention. So when all of this happened, you know, when the quarantine was actually first um, called here in New York, I remember looking at the news. I'm addicted to the internet. And I look at, you know, BBC, CNN, I look at Fox News, I look at all of them. But we were just starting to hear about George Floyd. And I remember there was a blurb, and then there was nothing. Then there was um, uh, Amy Cooper. And, you know, and then there were other people. It was just going on and on and on and on. And I kept saying to myself and to my husband, who happens to be white, who actually grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood, Mm. we kept saying to each other, like, when are people going to pay attention? When is there going to actually be a change? And then all of a sudden, here we go, you know, there's protests, you know, neither Jamie nor I agree with any of the uh, uh, defacing of public um, or private property. It's not about that. But we do agree in the idea of being able to be out there and protesting and making your voice known. Um, I think another thing that's different um, is that the people that we're seeing out there marching are actually the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the people that were marching in the civil rights movements of the late 50s and 60s. You know, I am born and raised here in New York City. My parents are uh, from the South, from Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, Henderson, North Carolina. And they grew up in a segregated you know, society, and they came up north because they needed to escape it. They wanted more for themselves. And when they met one another in Brooklyn, one of the original chocolate cities, they decided that, you know, when they were able to, they wanted to move to Staten Island and find a place where they could raise their children in an integrated, you know, community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing that, you know, I hope that kids today and the next generations that they don't have to go through what I went through as a child, as the first, you know, uh, generation of that great, uh, you know, social experiment that was the civil rights movement, which means we grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s. You know, I unfortunately was chased down the street. My bike was stolen. I had to watch people call my parents, you know, nigger. I watched my parents be refused service at a restaurant or tried to be refused service. Am I watching my father beg to, you know, have the owner of the restaurant honor the reservation that he made months in advance and that he had, you know, called and confirmed, you know, multiple times. I pray that those kids nowadays, that they don't have to have that, but, you know, and they're fighting for it because they're seeing, you know, what I went through that, and what is still going on, that it's not right and something has to change. Right, right, absolutely. Something is, but it is, I- And it is. And it is, it is changing. And and this is, it's it's beautiful to watch. I mean, it's beautiful to take part in and beautiful to see. I mean, it's so inspiring. And I, I, 
just have to say that um, I'm honored to speak with you both today. And Jamie. I think that, um, you know, first of all, we're dealing with two pandemics yeah. um, concurrently, you know, and the more, uh, the one that kind of flared up first was COVID-19. Yeah. And as Allison was saying, um, everyone has been locked in in New York. I mean, yeah. we're in New York, and I think we felt it most intensely in New York. Mm -hmm. People were locked in. Uh, people were concerned about their health. We were all concerned about breathing. Um, mm -hmm. I have a good girlfriend um, who is perfectly well, but just the anxiety of um, and the tension of this era of COVID-19 and the threat of getting ill, um, she dealt with anxiety and she couldn't breathe, you know? And I know several people who are dealing with that. Yeah. And, um, and I think that uh, the attack on George Floyd and the popular quote, I can't breathe, I think not just us in America, but the entire world resonated with that because the entire world was suffering from this threat of not being able to breathe. I mean, it's our God-given right to breathe. Hmm. And, um, and I think the Black Lives Matter movement that came, um, well, for us, a couple of weeks after COVID-19 began, hmm. has kind of uh, cracked open the consciousness of humanity worldwide certainly in America. And, um, and I think that that crack in consciousness is now wide open. Yes. You know, and, and, and all good people, all people who believe in, uh, in good, in justice, in fairness, in equality, are impacted yeah. uh, by, this, by this movement and want to participate. Yeah. Yeah, and, and to the point of, you know, not being able to breathe, again, I'm on Staten Island, and, you know, all I can think about is Eric Garner. You know, that was July 2014. That was six years ago. I think it was July the 17th he was killed. And, you know, you start to question yourself. Wait a second. We all saw the video. We all watched it. We all heard him say, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And yet police officers, you know, they were let go. You know, the, the, the Garner family is still fighting for justice. And I just, it makes me wonder, you know, had the coronavirus, had the quarantine happened then, yeah. would we be paying attention? Would, would, would we have made more, you know, headway? But, you know, at the same time, we can't go back. You know, this is now this is what's happening and um but i just think it's you know it, it's it's a time of reflection it's a time of reckoning it's a time of awakening it's a time of rebirth and you know and and it's a time for change and change is always good you know, and I think that America, we need to be leading the charge in this because it, it really is our responsibility. We always like to, you know, 
talk about how strong we are and how we're such great leaders on the global level and we still haven't really addressed our own issues with inequality and so again it's 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 an exciting moment I know it sounds weird, but it's an exciting moment. <laughs> it is. No, I agree with you. I think it's an incredibly exciting moment. I, 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 I think it's an important and beautiful moment. I think, yeah. unfortunately, <clears throat> people have died, and I'm, right. I'm so sorry for their families. Uh, and it's, it's heartbreaking. But here we are, and you're right. It is up to us as America to make mm -hmm. a difference. And, and I do think that this is our opportunity and it is happening. And, and mm -hmm. I really feel that it is, the change is happening. It, it, it's already, I mean, you could see it even in the fashion business and we'll get to that because that's how you both met, Allison. That's how you and I met. Yes. Um, and, you know, curiously, it's, it's starting to happen where, you know, people are, companies are, you know, leaders at companies are being asked to step down because of their, you know, unethical company culture and, and inequality. And that's, that's incredible. And I'm curious, you know, for, for you guys in the fashion business, you know, how has that, you know, what was your experience and did that shape you in any way, you know, coming from that business and what, what was your experience? Well, for me, you know, as I said before, my parents are from the South and the way that we were raised was that, um, again, we were the first generations of integration here in New York City, yeah. um, real integration. Yeah. We were raised that no matter where we go, people are going to judge us immediately because of the color of our skin. Right. It's not something that we agree with. But that is unfortunately the truth and the reality of life within the United States. And it is actually the reality throughout the world, but we'll get to that later. But my parents instilled in us very simple, you know, guidelines and morals. And it was, we needed to be educated. We needed to work hard. We needed to have a strong work ethic. You know, God was our like superpower. Our, we were, uh, uh, our faith is extremely strong and helped us get through everything. But I think, you know, what helped me make my way and navigate through the world was the foundation and education that I received both at home and out in the real world. And I think that that's something that the world really needs to do. People aren't educating themselves. We have limited the story of the history of blackness in this country. It we limit it to Booker T, you know, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, when there were so many other stories that are out there. there are, our history has been, you know, repressed and it's been repressed for a reason, mm. you know, but as a black person, I needed to learn the story of white America. Mm. And how was I going to navigate my way through knowing that I already had one major thing, which is my skin color going against me. So my parents, we, they educated us, you know, all three of us, we 
played piano, started classically trained in piano at the age of five. Each of us were told you have to choose another instrument. My brother chose French horn, my sister flute, I chose oboe clarinet. All of us are into sports. All of us were volunteering. We understood what community service was, going to nursing homes, babysitting. We understood what it was to earn a dollar and what it was to work hard. So by the time it I was ready to make my way into the industry, I already had this foundation. I already had all of these other experiences that had been thrown at me here on Staten Island mm. that equipped me, that gave me, you know, my armor. Yeah. So that, you know, my internship uh, when I was in college, uh, it was um, the late 80s and I was doing my last semester in London. And I sent my resume in a letter to Gerard Marie, who if people are from the industry, you know, he was the, um, he headed up the uh, elite model management. And I wrote him a letter saying I wanted an interview and I didn't hear from him. And so I followed it up with a letter and I didn't hear from him. And so I did what my mother said, pick up the phone, go straight to the source. And I picked up the phone and kept calling until I got him on the phone. And finally he picked up and he was just like, you have just been on my case. Like what is going on? And I told him, I was just like, look, I'm a black girl from Staten Island. I have been studying fashion, looking at magazines, researching everything that I could. And I'm going to school in London and I need an internship and I want to work for you for free. And he was just like, wow, come on into the, my office. Mm. And, you know, and I did that. And that was during the, you know, 1990, that was during the supermodel reign. And from that moment on, I just kept doing that throughout my career. I've actually, I haven't had some of the problems that a lot of artists, and I'm sure Jamie will tell you from his experience being a model or even being an agent for, um, you know, uh, uh, artists of color and black artists. Yeah. You know, I never had that. Yeah. Um, and I think it was also because I was always drawn to working with women who were also tearing down the ceiling, raging against the machine, and going against the stereotypes that were put in front of them. Mm -hmm. And each of those women, whether it was Linda Trow from, you know, Madison Avenue Design Group in the Garment District, you know, who brought me in as a receptionist, I talked my way into being her assistant. Tina Bossidy, you know, stylist, again, I got that job from being at Madison Avenue Design Group. Somebody told me Tina needed an assistant. My first shoot ever was with my idol, Stephen Mizell, who I had the nerve on the first shoot to walk up, introduce myself to him. Everybody on set was shocked that I even did so, but it ended up coming back to me because there was a problem during the shoot and Stephen asked me to come over and asked me, does it look right? To, to me, I love it. And, and then he asked me to stand behind him for the rest of the shoot. So, you know, my parents, what they gave me and this confidence, and, and this is a gift, you know, a lot of my brothers and sisters out there haven't had the luxury of having two parents in their household. They haven't had the luxury of having a man there as an example to say, this is what it is to be, you know, a young lady, you know, or a mother to do the same, you know. Mm. Um, 
I'm blessed in that regard. And then when I made my way in with Katie Barker, who again was part of that, you know, the three grand dames I call of British fashion, they also tore down the doors of the industry. It was Camilla uh, Lowther, Kim Sion, and Katie Barker. And they came in and just flipped the script on the industry. And for this woman, this British woman, to again see me, to trust me, and then at the age of 25, let me run her company, her, her New York office, her US division. I think it was because we saw so much of each other and we saw that we were all fighters. Mm. And thankfully, I had those women with me and by my side because they were fighting their own battles within the industry. Mm. And, you know, we saw the color because again, I always announce myself as I'm a black girl, you know, and I'm trying to make my way in. But I was able to get the doors opened easily. Um, and again, I think it's because of my education, my upbringing. And I know if there's any black folks that are out there that are watching this, they're also going to say because of my skin, you know, I'm light skinned. You know, there is a lot of discrimination against people that are light and dark, even within our own community. So, you know, that was another plus and another bonus for me. Um, and if there was ever an incident, and Jamie knows this as well because he witnessed it, if there was an incident where somebody spoke, you know, about, you know, said something that was, you know, derogatory or discriminating against black people or any people, I always speak up, you know, I was raised to that a relationship is based on three things, trust, communication, and respect. Mm -hmm. And those three things, if one is faltering, then you can't have the other. The relationship is not going to work. And I think that that's also something that our country and the world right now, we need to remember that. If we wanna do this and we wanna do all of this together, we need to communicate with one another, we have to trust one another, and most importantly, we have to respect one another. I'm always going to respect you, and guess what? I'm always going to demand to be respected in return. Absolutely, wow. Wow, that's, thank you for sharing that. I mean, Jamie, tell me. My experience is, uh, <laughs> it's, a little bit, it's a little bit different, but similar. Um, so when I moved to New York from Jamaica, I went through a bit of culture shock. Um, and for understandable reasons. Um, I come from a family in Jamaica. First of all, my ancestors are African and British. And in my family, it ranges from white to black and everything in between, including um, Chinese and there's, um, we have a lot of Chinese in Jamaica and East Indian and there are historical reasons for that. Um, I come from a family that uh, was very focused on education, um, good manners, good breeding and excellent education. It's just the way it was. We're British Commonwealth and that's the way that it was organized. Um,
I was a swimmer um, between seven and 17. Um, I had, um, I always think of my background in Jamaica as being a very charmed existence, a very privileged existence. I went to um, prep school between uh, three and 11. I went to a private all boys high school between 11 and 17. And then I worked in Jamaica for a few years before moving to New York when I was 20. You know, Jamaica is a beautiful country. Um, it's, it's surrounded by the Caribbean Sea, um, you know, beautiful mountains and hills. It's a very interesting culture. So when I moved to New York, I moved to Crown Heights, Brooklyn, where my sister lived at the time. And I basically moved into a concrete jungle and that was like a major shock for me. Um, very difficult to adjust to. It literally took me about 10 years uh, to adjust to being in America. But uh, my first relationship began very soon after I moved here and I moved into Manhattan uh, probably when I was about 21, so a year later. And that relationship took me out to Portland, Oregon. And in the interim, I had worked in Bloomingdale's um, as a sales clerk. I remember for the Ralph Lauren Polo Western shop. And a man passing through Bloomingdale's one day saw me and wanted to do, take some test pictures of me. So we did those pictures. I didn't have... Um, I didn't really think of myself as a model or having what it took to be that because my background was so academically oriented. Um, you know, our graduating exams for high school in Jamaica are set by Cambridge, Cambridge University in England. And there are two exams that we do. One is called ordinary level, which you do after your first five years of high school. And one is called advanced level, which is uh, another two years of education. Um, in that two years of education, I studied West Indian history, British history, and European history, in addition to English literature and economics. West Indian history is all about slavery and the, uh, the triangle, you know, the movement between Europe, Africa, and the New World. And... Um, but West Indian history is something you start studying from you're around 11 years old. So you kind of develop an academic, but also a real understanding of slavery um, and the different relationships uh, during slavery and the corporate structure of slavery and the impact it had on the relationship between blacks and whites. Um, we also had native Indians um, who were called Arawaks and Caribs that were killed off um, by Europeans during that time. Um, but so I went out to Portland, Oregon, um, took those pictures with me, met um, a department store in Oregon and uh, was exposed to a modeling career in Portland, came back to New York, uh, got signed with Wilhelmina and then Ford. And that was uh, actually an eye-opener for me because it was a very difficult process, actually. It was not a very easy process being a model in New York at that time because um, I really felt discrimination for the first time in my life when I was, um, you know, in my early 20s. And um, 
I moved on from that career uh, after a few years because uh, even though I was on the cover of Essence and was optioned to be on the cover of GQ, um, I found it very difficult to make a living. And the 80s was actually a very lucrative time in the modeling business when male models were the supermodels actually of that era mm. or, or of the modeling industry period, in my opinion, historically. And it was very difficult to make a living. So um, I felt like a complete failure at the end of that career. Um, applied to Columbia University, was accepted. And, um, and then I made a transition after Columbia and started studying makeup in Los Angeles. And again, came back to New York, um, met Francois Nars, and basically started working as a makeup artist during the supermodel era of the mid 90s. Um, I grew up on the set of Steven Meisel because Francois was Steven's main makeup artist at that point. Mm. I did all the shows in the world, including Versace before he was assassinated. Oh, wow. um, but because of my conservative background and, and, and family pressure, I needed to somehow combine my love for the fashion industry with something slightly more conservative. Mm. And that's when the transition happened into the uh, representing artist becoming an agent. Mm. And, um, and, and uh, that's how my career began as an agent. Um, I had some experiences when I did makeup uh, there was one experience, uh, we were on a trip in Los Angeles and there was um, a very famous model at that time, Karen Alexander, who was the model on that job and we were shooting for a well-known department store. Um, Karen was full of energy. It was a pleasure working with her. Um, she was, um, you know, really ebullient. But the photographer for that particular job uh, didn't really like her interaction with Karen. And on the way back uh, to the hotel uh, from that job, the photographer expressed, you know, her her uh, angst uh, throughout from from that day, and referred to Karen as an effing black bitch. Um, I remember my cousin uh, Tracy Campbell who is a Hollywood producer, who is of Jamaican parentage, but born and raised in America, so had a different exposure to, to what I did. Um, being very upset that I didn't challenge that um, outburst in the car on my way back to the hotel. But I was earning $1,000 a day during that time, which I needed to take care of my family. Mm. And, um, and I also felt that if I reacted to that, that I would be considered an angry black man or that I would be somehow um, ousted or discriminated against as a makeup artist. So I didn't. So I went through a good part of my life not speaking out, not reacting to race issues, but that really has changed. And it was one of the things that impressed me about Alison when I met her um, at Katie Barker Agency was how outspoken she was. And, um, and it's also a conversation that I've had uh, 
repeatedly with my cousin uh, just the importance of being honest and speaking out and standing up for my rights. Absolutely. Wow. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, I mean, you both you grew up in, in the business. I mean, it's, it's, it's years, right? I mean, you both grew up and, and you, I'm sure, have seen a lot of change. I'm just wondering, you know, what do you think now businesses can do to really affect change? What can the business do to, you know, stay on course and, and make a difference? I mean, I, you know, brands, corporations, they have so much power. You know, there's the story uh, uh, or the poem, the revolution will be, will not be televised by Gil Scott Heron. And it's kind of so like prolific right now um, because what he's actually talking about was, um, you know, there were all of these protests that were going on in the 1960s, 70s, and he was a part of them. And they were, he was hanging out with some friends. They were watching the news and the newscaster was talking about all of these demonstrations that were going on. And somebody said, wait a second, the revolution's not going to uh, be televised. Why doesn't somebody get out there and do something? Mm. And so they were just like, hey, write that down. That sounds good. And um, for the next few days or weeks, as he was like trying to write this poem, um, they were watching TV and they were looking at like how powerful advertising was. Mm. And they were looking at what was happening outside their doors versus what was happening on TV and they were so different. One was this crazy fantasy and then one was the reality of it. So I think our, you know, if you have this much power as a brand, I think now is the time for you to like use your power for good, you know, and look, the generation, the millennial generation and all of the ones that uh, go after them, they will buy brands that stand for something. And yes. I think it's now time for brands to really, you know, come up with what their statement is, but don't just talk about it. Don't just black out your page on Instagram. Don't just throw money at it, you know? they need to look past what's actually comfortable and they need to go to the place of discomfort right. first. Well, it you know? sounds, it sounds like, you know, education from both of you, the way that you both spoke about your experience and what gave you confidence and armor and knowing was and is education. So that in itself, if brands are, educate their staff and and there's more of a message and yes there is definitely an alignment with with good causes and 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 all of that but it's it it, it feels like education is is the root isn't it absolutely yeah. education and also letting black people know that you actually want to, that you see them that yeah. you want to hire us yeah. You know, um, right now is a wonderful time for agents, agencies, advertising agencies. You know, there's a very small group of black people in the industry right now and or, or had 
been a very small group. It was, I always say that I've often been the, you know, one of the specks of pepper in a large sea of salt. You know, I've walked into so many advertising agencies and I'm looking, or I walk on set and I'm looking for somebody who looks like me. Which and, is standard for, for people like us who work at that level. Exactly. Is, is we're always the only black person in, 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 in every situation. It's, led, it's followed me throughout my entire life yeah. in this industry. Exactly. And now's the time, you know, brands, hey, look, a lot of people have been let go. A lot of people are furloughed. A lot of people are just freelancing anyhow. Now is the time. Reach out to the Black people that you know. Yeah. <laughs> Reach out to people that have been successful in this industry and have navigated our way through. Now is a time for you to be asking us questions and we can help you. But at the same time, if we're going to help you, we need to be paid. You need to hire us the same way that you would hire other consultants to come in and help you with your strategy. Reach out to us because we're here. We're willing to talk and, and, and also listen to what it is that you need. And also, you know, let, let, the black community, as I was saying before, let them know that you're interested. Go into these communities. Don't just look at the kids that are walking down the street and say like, oh my gosh, his style is so cool. I love his sneakers or I love the way he put that together. Now I'm going to go back into my studio and I'm going to recreate it under my brand and slap a label on it and call it streetwear. Hire those kids, hire those boys teach them what the business is because so many people out there a lot of people don't even understand how our industry works let alone a lot of black kids a lot of white people most people don't understand how our industry works so rather than being so exclusive which especially fashion beauty luxury has been right we need to become a lot more inclusive and diverse Who's, and diverse for sure who's mm -hmm. do, who do you who do you think is doing it well Who's doing it right? Any example? I mean, come well, on. Like Alison, like Virgil uh, from Louis Vuitton. Yeah. Um, there is, uh, who else is out there? I mean, what's the, uh, Balma mm -hmm. with uh, Olivier Rustang. Yes. Um, uh, I mean, there are artists out there now um, that are doing quite well. I mean, oh. Jawara comes to mind, mm -hmm. um, you know, the hairstylist. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the photographer, Alison, uh, Tyler, mm -hmm. right? right? He's, he's doing quite well. But, you know, um, I, I think that there is a, there is, there was a value in the Me Too movement recently, in terms of uh, outing individuals or companies that were endorsing, uh, you know, abuse, and uh, there is such a deep, deep systemic racism in the fashion industry yeah. um, that needs to be outed as part of the healing. Right. I think it's, I think that the healing that we foresee mm -hmm. is important, but I think to get there that we need to really address 
the elitism and the racism in the industry from the top down. And that would begin with many of our top, you know, fashion publications. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. One of the, one, I mean, just to add, I think Kirby from Pyre Moss is doing a brilliant job. I, I, I love where he's heading. I love the way he thinks. I love how authentic he is um, with everything and the stories that he tells with his clothing. I think that a lot of brands, I can't actually say what brands, aside from brands that I know are black owned, yeah. I can't really think of a lot of brands. And, and that's why, you know, yeah. there's, there's a movement that's going on. Which is on. the problem right there, by the way. Which is the problem. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a movement called Pull Up for Change that's on Instagram. And, and I think it's, what, two, maybe three weeks old. And they're doing exactly what Jamie said. They're calling to task and asking people, like, pull up or shut up. Let us know. Now's the time to right. be transparent. Because you're talking about it. You're, everybody's posting all of their yeah. favorite pictures of black models. And, and, you know, everybody's saying, oh, Naomi, Edward, we love you. Pat, right like that but there's so many other things like let, let's go beyond this surface conversation right. And, right. and really like dig deep and and show us and pull up for changes asking these brands you know mm -hmm. brands mm -hmm. it's okay it's okay just let us know how many people are black people of color female however you want to break it down and we also want to see it from the executive level and the managerial yeah. Right. You know, so I think I think it's really important. And again, you know, I I have been blessed because all all of the jobs that really affected me the most and that I think like really built my reputation um, to help me get my reputation to where it was, was I was right next to the owner. Yeah. And so in so many ways, as I am today with Blendspire, a technology I'm working on, I'm working with the visionary who's a woman who happens to be white, and I'm a woman that happens to be black. Mm -hmm. And the two of us are working together. I think that's where people need to go. I think that, you know, there are also, you know, when, when people are hiring, you know, I've always been in a managerial position. It's been my honor and my pleasure when I see a name that reads very, very black, you know, Lakeisha. When I see a Lakeisha resume, I'm calling Lakeisha in. But I know a lot of people will be like, ooh, that's way too ethnic. I, I, I can't do that. We're going to put her to the side. So look at everybody's resume. Give everybody, like, the opportunity. There are so many incredible young minds out there that are waiting for this. But also, more importantly, is, you know, when you're hiring, um, you know, and doing these photo shoots, you know, we have to get past this thing where Black hairstylists or Black makeup artists can only do black hair mm, mm -hmm. and they can only work with black artists. Yeah. You know, we need to get past that. At the same yes. time, we need to get to the point where when there is a black artist on set, if that hairstylist or if that makeup artist doesn't actually know how to do their hair and what they end up doing is hiring an assistant to do the hair for them, that's, that's a problem because there are so many great talents out there. Right. Mm. Yeah. And, um, you know, there has been 
diversity and inclusion has been is kind of a modern concept in the fashion industry. And there is a constant debate amongst people of color in the industry as to whether this, move, this is a trend or it's actually a transitional movement. Yeah. Um, mm. Something happened recently that I wanna talk about. <laughs> One of the top photo stylist hair and makeup agencies in the industry has caught on to this movement and recently uh, uh, signed on a photographer who has been shooting for Vogue, um, a couple of really um, well-known hairstylists today, um, a fashion stylist, uh, who are all people of color. And prior to this, they would never have considered representing black people. Oh they would barely have considered uh, having black people on their staff. And now that it's current and relevant, right. they're now representing, which is good in a sense, but I think that we shouldn't ignore a certain level of hypocrisy sure. in that situation. Yeah. And, um, and also, you know, just adding to something that Alison said just now about, uh, having people on set. There's also a complaint in the industry from models and entertainers and actors and actresses of color that glam squads, glam teams don't understand their hair textures or their skin tones and can't um, uh, execute in a beautiful way on set because they don't understand those textures. And I think it's very important that um, that, that, that is paid attention to in product, on productions, that when you have people of color in your, amongst your actors and models, et cetera, that they're being provided with glam teams that can work with them. And as Alison said, that you don't have a lead hair or a lead makeup artist who is booking a, an assistant of color to do those jobs. Mm. Because why should an assistant of color be doing those jobs and not being paid the rate for doing those jobs? Because it also comes back to an economic you know, and financial issue sure. that we also need to be paid equally. Okay and not as assistance or less than. Exactly. I mean, there's already disparity between, you know, payments that's happening between, you know, men and women, you know? So, you know, as women, we're fighting. We want to be equal. We, we deserve to have, you know, the same amount of pay. And then you throw color into it or you throw blackness into it and, Again, our 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 rates go lower. I mean, I've 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 experienced that, unfortunately, and I ended up walking away from that scenario um, because no matter how hard I worked, it just seems like it was never enough, you know. And it got to a point where I said, you know what, this isn't this isn't right. I 
wasn't able to take a vacation for three years and was on 24 seven. And to some people in the industry, that's the way it's supposed to be, but that's not the life that I choose for myself, you know, especially if I'm not being compensated and paid accordingly. Absolutely. Unfortunately, the business, the fashion business is very much, you kind of give your soul up. Yeah. You know, it's like, here's my soul, you know, Oh, you need to work for, for nothing 24 seven. Right. And you should be grateful. And you should be grateful. Part of the industry. You know, you know, when I, when I, uh, ran my company, uh, for the, you know, past seven years, and I was negotiating constantly for the artists we represented. My business partner often expressed a concern that we were being offered low rates because we were people of color. I'm not sure that that was necessarily a fact, but because that that is often the experience of people of color, it was a question that came up from my partner very often. Yeah. You know, were we being offered lesser rates because we were people of color? Mm. Yeah. It's terribly upset. I mean, it's so upsetting. I mean, this is, this is, this is everything and the reason why the, this is happening right now. I mean, and, and I think that, you know, there has to be something in place, some sort of, you know, organization, some checkpoints, some, some, you know, just, just a, a way to, to equalize this. And, 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 you know, I just, um, I know, I know it's incredibly daunting and sometimes you know, hearing these stories always, it's just, it's, it's very upsetting. And then having to, you know, hear them and then know that people that you love and care have been through this. Um, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's awful. And I, I do want to mention one other thing that we talked about, which I, and then there's a reason why we're all here. And Jamie, you had mentioned this when we spoke about synchronicity mm-hmm. and I, love that idea and I love that concept of of what you brought up and um you know as as someone who is uh I mean I just loved hearing what you said about the synchronicities of of getting you know meeting you and knowing Allison and I having this conversation about you know about so much and then saying hey would you like to be on the podcast and and Allison say well you know I was just talking to my dear friend Jamie about we need to get on a podcast. I was like, well, there you go. So everything does happen for a reason. And, and there is a bigger, that sometimes we don't even know why or, or what it is, right? But, but um, tell us about your, your feeling of synchronicity and how it's played into your life. You know, it's, it's just something that I noticed when I was very young in various situations that for me, it was an experience with the number two. Mm. And it just occurred in so many different situations, whether AM or it would be, um, you know, 2.22 AM or PM, or if I were in Europe, 
it would be, you know, 22 hours or 22, 22. And I've just noticed this for my entire life. And I was in Paris um, uh, many years ago. I worked in Paris a lot, spent many months at a time in Paris over many years. And uh, I was staying with a friend who had a book in his library called Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. So I started reading this book by Carl Jung. Mm -hmm. And he wrote that book when he was 80, or it was published when he was 80. And it just so happened that my mom was 80 when I was reading that book. Wow. And um, there is a chapter in the book that, well, Carl Jung came from a middle-class background in Switzerland. Um, he had a lot of uh, ministers of religion in his family. Uncles, probably father, brother, were ministers, were reverence, ministers of religion. And um, I related to that a lot because my grandfather was a minister of religion. I had granduncles who were ministers of religion. We were middle class uh, in Jamaica. We even had, you know, mountains and hills like they do in Switzerland. So there was something about him that I, I, I related to, I was very attracted to. And um, there was a particular cha chapter on the synchronicity of numbers. And that chapter expressed exactly what I was experiencing, um, just in terms of uh, this coincidence. Um, getting on a flight, for example, traveling between Europe and America or throughout America or throughout Europe, and I'd be seated in, you know, row two or mm -hmm. row 22. Mm -hmm. And it would give me comfort to know that, okay, so this flight is going to go great. Yeah. It's a, this is going to be a safe flight. Yeah. It would literally give me comfort. Yeah. And um, as I continued reading this chapter on the synchronicity of numbers, he concluded that synchronicity equals God, and that it means that God is with us. Yes. And um, I really related to that, Absolutely. you know, and that was my, and, and to this day, I mean, you know, now it's expanded to, you know, 111 or 1111. I saw 1111 this morning. <laughs> yeah, I always take my screenshots when I get 1111, screenshot it. I do the same thing when I get any of those, especially yeah. the twos. I take yeah. take screenshots all the time, yeah. and I will send it to my partner and say, "I'll say, see, uh, God is with us." But something really significant happened. So I think uh, Francesca sent us some information at was it eleven something on Monday night. Mm -hmm. So I didn't see that email until Tuesday night. And when I looked at the email, it said received 22 hours ago. Wow. So I responded immediately to Francesca and I was doing this and that in the interim. Well, she got back to me pretty much right away. But by the time I saw it, it said I uh, received 22 minutes ago. Oh. <laughs> and I thought, okay, so this is really intriguing. Amazing. Oh, I'm getting like the chills. <laughs> yeah. It's all meant to happen. I love it. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I love so it. Thank you. For whatever it's worth. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's I do believe. I believe it too. Yeah. I believe it too. So we're all connected. 
thank you so much. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Allison, Jamie, you both are incredible thank souls. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you, Andrea. Thank Thanks you. for giving us the opportunity and for um, exploring this topic with us. Absolutely. Thank you, thank Absolutely. you for exploring it with me. I'm, I'm honored. I'm, I'm truly honored. Thank you.